The upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles. You're listening to the two-man power trip. Hi, folks. I'm WWE Hall of Famer Hacksaw Jim Duggan. If you'd like hearing knock-knock jokes or jokes about your grandmother, go somewhere else! Oh! oh my god, this is Joey Styles, and you're listening to the Two Man Power Trip Podcast. This is Cody Rhodes, and you are listening to Two Man Power Trip. Good, how you doing, Chad? Hey, Johnny. Cool, man, what's going on? We ready to go, or what? Okay. This is a uh, special visitor, the hardcore legend, Mick Foley. It was a very rough feud to go through with Rick. It was a very bitter feud, too. He certainly didn't like me at that time, and I didn't like him, and we were both trying to be at the top. I don't do many wrestling shows anymore, probably because I'm a bit ignorant. You guys probably know ten times more than I do. Look, Mean Gene, I can't be beat. I'm the greatest of all time. And I would say that. And every kid up, they knew they could kick the out of me. At this point, well, I'll be at a signing, and little kids will come up to me and throw up the click sign or talk about, oh, your ladder match with Sean at WrestleMania 10. I go, wait a minute. You weren't even a glimmer in your dad's eye. But yeah, bro, it's really flattering and, and amazing and humbling. Great talking to you guys. It's been your pleasure. <laughs> They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied thousands of hours of wrestling. And now they bring to you the greatest legends, Hall of Famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars of pro wrestling. They are Primetime Pod and Chad, the two men power trip of Where's Jungle Jim from? That's Jungle. He loves it when I ask him. That's the only answer he knows. He feels so good when I do that. Where do you want me to say? Are you talking to me? Yes. Upper East Side. Upper East Side what? He's from Upper East Side. Well, East Side of the Jungle. Hanging out of the wrist. Dropping down on him. Does he speak jungle? No. He doesn't speak like... <laughs> no, nothing like that, huh? Can he say something like, boy, Jane? He say words like he that? He is not Tarzan. He's Jungle Jim Steel. Somebody get the hook for Bob here. Stop! Oh! Armstrong met the foot of the foot that time with a big clothesline out of the corner. Why did he open up on Armstrong? Jungle Jim Steele. I think it's the beginning of the end. The steel trap. That's it. Jungle Jim Steele. With the win here on Saturday night. And tonight where a lot of questions need to be answered. Maybe some by Hulk Hogan. I got the answer. Now, Jungle Jim kicks Armstrong right in the face. Armstrong isn't really sure where he is right now. 
and that clothesline just drives him into that man. Now watch this. Look at the elevation the man from the jungle here gets. Armstrong didn't have a chance. The steel trap. And in short language, it's really... That means the winner, Jungle Jim Steel. Thank you for that. We'll be back. Hello and welcome to the two-man power trip of wrestling. I am your host, JP John Paz, and this is the flagship episode for the two-man power trips of wrestling's podcasting empire, the TMPT Empire. And on today's episode, we have Jungle Jim Steel. All Japan Pro Wrestling, All Asia World Tag Team Champion on the show. He was also a WWC down there in Puerto Rico, a World Heavyweight Champion as well as a Television Champion. I feel like a lot of people definitely know Jim Steele, probably from WCW, but if you're a real true fan, you probably know him more from All Japan Pro Wrestling or maybe his time in New Japan Pro Wrestling as well. I feel like a lot of uh, Japan fans and a lot of hardcore fans will remember him as so many different gimmicks in all Japan, whether it be the lacrosse gimmick or the love machine gimmick or the Wolf Hawkfield gimmick or just being Jim Steele himself. I feel like that was kind of a, a lot of things that we got to talk about in this interview was all those gimmicks and playing all those different characters and being whatever kind of all Japan needed him to be at the time, which is just a great team player. And if you want him in a mask, sure, we'll, we'll be in a mask. But he was always in a good spot. So, yes, you know, he's doing all these gimmicks, but he's always ended up in a pretty damn good spot being a top gaijin over there in Japan for many, many years, basically an 11-year run going back and forth to Japan from the United States. Think about the gaijins in All Japan Pro Wrestling at the time. Dr. Death Steve Williams, Stan Hansen, Terry Gordy, Gary Albright. I mean, you had some of the greatest wrestlers of all time, not to mention the Japanese guys like Misawa, Kawada, and Kobashi, who are also some of the greatest wrestlers of all time. So, I mean... Add that all together, spiced it all up. It's one of the greatest wrestling leagues, one of the greatest wrestling promotions of all time. I mean, all Japan Pro Wrestling is just an absolute gem and an absolute darling, that's for sure. And Jim Steele spent a ton of time over there, many, many tours, almost too many tours to count. That's so many. I mean, just crazy amount of tours. We do go through his entire career. We go from his days in the ICWA in Florida to the USWA to a WC, a W. We talk a little bit about ECW, a little bit about his time in WWE, and all the way back to the WWF. Of course, like I just mentioned, we talk about All Japan Pro Wrestling a lot. We talk about New Japan Pro Wrestling, and we do a dabble about Puerto Rico and WWC as well. So I don't want to talk too much because this is a great lengthy interview, which I absolutely love. And I, before I kind of send it off to some two-man power trip of wrestling business and then throw it on over to the interview, just want to mention we also have Rick Bassman's Talking Tough, a part of the two-man power trip, and that can be heard on Podcast One. Also, the three-way dance with Rick Bassman, a part of the Talking Tough, will also be available on Podcast One. We have Dirty Dutch Mantel's University of Dutch, which is available on the MLW Radio Network. We have Shane Douglas's Triple Threat Podcast, which is available on Vince Russo's The Brand. And then last but certainly not least, Dr. Tom Pritchard's Taking You to School which is available right here on the TMPT feed. So without any further ado, I'm going to send it on over to some two-man power trip of wrestling business and then on over to a great interview with Jungle Jim Steve. 
now for some TMPT business. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Two Man Power Trip and at Rasslin Pal. Subscribe to us on YouTube. Also, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. Please leave us a review. We would love to hear your feedback. Check out the feed for awesome past episodes, including Bruno San Martino, Sean Mike, Dusty Rhodes, Jerry Lawler, Terry Funk, Goldberg, Ray Mysterio Jr., Arn Anderson, Glenn Kane Jacobs, and so many more. While you're on the web, visit ProWrestlingTees.com. Yes, that is ProWrestlingTees.com. Visit our store, visit J.J. Dillon's store, Francine's store, and of course, the franchise Shane Douglas' store. For all you Android users out there, find us on Google Play and Player FM. For all you iOS users, check us out on TuneIn Radio, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Podomatic, and now Stitcher. And of course, check out the Empire. Yes, that is the TMPT Empire now. TMPTEmpire.com for all the latest and greatest on the two-man power trip of wrestling. on the line right now is a former all japan pro wrestling all asia tag team champion and a former wwc world heavyweight champion you may know him as jungle the love machine lacrosse wolf hawkfield but we know him as jim Steele. mr Steele, welcome to the two-man power trip of wrestling <laughs> how you doing tonight Doing very good. You obviously, you know, you've had a, a lot of different uh, names throughout your career. But what kind of what have you been up to lately? Uh, lately, like currently, mm-hmm. uh, I don't do any wrestling um, at all anymore. Uh, just uh, working after after wrestling uh, in what was it like 2005? I think was my last match. Um, went through like a transition phase of like trying to go from wrestling to that cool job into like the regular nine to five kind of job. And that was kind of difficult to make that transition. Um, and uh, so let's see, that was 2005. I was actually working for a publishing company at that time. Uh, it was a startup company, and a few years later, when we had uh, the crash of 2008, I went back to school and uh, became a nurse. <laughs> so I know that's a pretty um, odd choice. I don't think there's a lot of ex-wrestlers that uh, went on to become nurses after a while afterwards, but uh, that's what I'm up to now. 
Well, thank you for doing that because now you guys are kind of uh, in the thick of it with the whole pandemic and, you know, everything else going on with the, with the coronavirus. You guys are pretty much, uh, you know, the front line for us out there, uh, really helping everyone else. Yep, yep, I guess so. I, I you know, it's definitely uh, it's definitely a, a bad disease. I just think uh, that some of that maybe have been overblown a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. I guess well, twenty twenty uh, hindsight's twenty twenty. So I guess as more data comes out, we will find out if it was really necessary to shut everything down and how you know how necessary it was. Just what forty plus million Americans out of work. I mean that's just ridiculous. So I hope we can get back get back into uh, you know good economy again and. And uh, everything kind of simmers down with this social distancing and six feet mm. apart. It's like, a, yeah, I'm a little bit over it, I guess you could say. Yep. I won't get too much into it, but I, I definitely uh, agree with you on that. It was a little overblown, uh, to say the least. But kind of why did you decide to retire from wrestling? Was it injuries? Were you just done with the business? What, why did you decide to get you know done with the business? Well, uh, so a lot of people – ask that question i think just not necessarily to me but just in general and i think when uh you know when people stop hiring you you have to make a choice of are you going to continue try to wrestle some independence or are you gonna uh make a, a change and do something that's a little bit more sustainable so that that's basically it. I wasn't having anybody. I'm uh, sure I could have probably hung around for a little while longer and tried to pick up some more tours over in Japan or maybe do some more tryouts and uh, if I could get a tryout match, you know. So it's just basically when they when they don't when when they're not calling you and you know that kind of makes a decision up for you for yourself right there. Gotcha. I totally get you. Now, as far as doing that, we're talking about the end, but maybe go back to the beginning. How did you actually kind of break in? How would you get into the business? Um, all right. So I was I was never a wrestling fan, um, which actually probably helps people when they're getting into wrestling if you are a – or if they are a wrestling fan, which I think most – wrestlers um grew up liking it loving it you know imitating the wrestlers on television in their living rooms off the couch or whatever so i never really never really had any aspirations to be a wrestler and uh i had some friends uh that were in it and they kept kind of talking me into coming down with them and training. And, and so eventually I said, sure. Okay. Why not? And I went down, uh, Steve Kern first, Steve Kern and Ron Slinker, uh, is the, uh, training camp that I first went to in, uh, in Tampa. And then, um, probably for maybe a year, year and a half, I think, there. And uh, Pat Tanaka 
took me uh, to what was it USWA Memphis territory. I was there for about a for about a month. Went up and did some uh, dark matches, job matches for um, WCW, and I don't know. They liked the way I look. I guess they gave me a call back and and then brought me up to Atlanta to the power plant back in the day. Quite a great journey and, and getting in and part of with Steve Curran, legendary wrestler. Ron Slinker, I think a lot of people should recognize that name. But were you comfortable like immediately? Like were you a good athlete? Was it like a, a good transition for you? Were you able to kind of gel to wrestling easier? Uh was I easier to per transition from what from what I did before to go into yeah, wrestling? Yeah, league? because you said you weren't a fan, you kind of weren't really. Oh yeah, really no, know. It was, no, it was difficult. Yeah, because I mean, I didn't know a wristwatch from a wrist slot. <laughs> um, right. I I literally had no history at all of wrestling. So when I started uh, training, that's when I started watching uh watching wrestling and learning how to do moves and uh yeah so i had i had no experience no history so i think that gave me a big that gave me a big hurdle to get over because most other people that were going into it i mean they at least had knowledge of different holds and probably even had uh, little matches in their head already planned out. I didn't know any of that already. Eddie, I, I started from scratch. Did you think that this would be like a great business to make money? What was your kind of thought? Like you said, you didn't really know anything about it. What were you thinking? Like possibly uh, a good job for the future? Um, I, I don't actually. I don't even know if I thought that much into it. I just kind of. I I know that I probably thought wrestling was this larger than life, grand televised uh, performance. And then when I had my first match in uh, the Sportatorium uh, in Tampa, where are you from, by the way? Asbury Park, New Jersey. Okay. All right. So in Tampa, they had a famous, uh, famous, famous venue, uh, the Sportatorium. It was just this little tiny, I don't even think it's there today, but it was right off of uh, Kennedy. Um, I think everybody had gone through there. Anybody who had was ever anybody um, had gone through that little Sportatorium. And uh, so, you know, I'm, I have in my mind what wrestling is, what 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 I've seen on television and cause I was kind of like at that point I was studying matches and trying to learn moves and a little bit of psychology. Uh, so that's the, the, the vision I had in my head. And then at the sportatorium, as you know, it, or not the, maybe necessarily the sportatorium, but any just small independent somewhere that runs high school gyms or, single halls or wherever they can find a place to rent. Um, you know, a, a small little building with, uh, I don't know, 150 people screaming at you. It was, it was actually, I don't know, I guess there was some interest there. I wouldn't have continued to do it, but 
the whole thing was like, this is this is wrestling, like with 150 people out there just yelling and screaming at each other. So it, my whole perception of uh, wrestling had, I guess, changed at that time. Um, and I think if I wouldn't have gotten a lucky break early on, that I would have probably uh, uh, probably would have not put as much into it just because I didn't have that long history of loving it as a kid. Um, and if I had to, uh, I guess, be on the road more or work, I, I don't know. I probably, I may have not uh, gone through it as, as I, as I had, I guess. Now, what was your background as far as like sports? Were, Cause you look like you're always in great shape. Were you a bodybuilder? Did you work out a lot? What was your kind of bat? I, I, I did work out a lot actually, but uh, before I worked out, I was really skinny. So I, I literally probably gained over a hundred pounds after I started working out. I think I started working out like when I was 19 before that, I never lifted a weight or anything. And, uh, so I was just skin and bones, but uh, my body did adapt really fast and really well just because I never had worked out. So, I gained uh, muscle and size pretty quick, and I guess that motiva- motivated me to continue to work out. Um, and even at that time, I think that's probably what got my friends to say, "Hey, you should come! You should come uh, be a wrestler. Have you ever thought about that?" And I'm like, "Wrestling? Really? No, not at all." So that's kind of that's kind of what got me probably into it is just because I was, I guess I was bigger. I looked maybe like a wrestler and friends of mine just kept talking me into coming down until I, they finally wore me down. <laughs> so. And how do you form the relationship with Pat Tanaka? You said Pat took you to the USWA in the Memphis territory. How does that relationship form? Uh, through, through the sportatorium. And I think he was also, he was also kind of, they're helping, I guess, you know, when, when you're in a certain part of town or area, there's not quite as many uh, wrestlers. Wrestling isn't really that popular anyway, as far as like how, where you can go learn and train. I think you had Malinko's in Tampa and Steve Kearns and Rob Slicker. I don't know. That might've been it. Uh, I don't, there might've been some others smaller independent ones. Um, but those are the only two that I knew of in, in Tampa. Um, and, uh, lost my friend out here. Uh, Patty Tanaka. Oh, Pat. Yes. And so Pat Tanaka was helping, thank you. Pat Tanaka was helping, uh, helping out with, uh, Steve Kern and, and uh, Ron Slinker, and I don't know if he was necessarily helping out, but he was one of the boys, so he just kind of hung out sometimes at that uh, training center uh, just because he's one of the boys and, you know, this what they do. And uh, so he just, uh, me, him, uh, I don't know if you know who Kenny Kendall is, another friend of mine. He's actually, Kenny Kendall is uh, one of the ones that uh, talked me into uh, trying wrestling out. And so just 
knowing him and and Patanaka just hanging around the uh the training center. Uh that's kinda how I got involved with him and how he uh brought us he brought Kenny Kendall down there too to uh USWA. Yeah, he wrestled uh, all over the place. I remember him in WCW quite often. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Yep. So he he was definitely around the block. When you got to USWA in Memphis, like you said, you really didn't stay there that long. Was there a reason? To, were you recruited to WCW, or what was the reason you didn't stay there for very long? Um, I think well, it was uh, me, Kenny, and uh, there was another friend of ours, Ruben, um, the Mexican bandito. Uh, hmm. He he uh, was local around here, and then I, I think he he actually did move up to Atlanta, went to the power plant a little bit, uh, trying to get in there. Um, but so, we, you know, we're not making much money up there. I think, I think a month is about all we, uh, all we could survive up there. Uh, and then, uh, came back to Tampa and shortly after that, I think I went up and did some, uh, some matches up in WCW, um, just jobber matches and, and, uh, Dusty called me in the, in the room and said, "Hey, what you doing down in Tampa, kid?" And uh, uh, not a lot, really. So he brought me up, and that's how that's how I got up up to do uh, WCW. Very cool, the big big man, big dust. Do you remember? Yep. You remember working Vader at all early on? Uh, um, I do actually. The, one of the very uh, one of the few times that I was up there, I didn't go up there a lot to do uh, jobber matches, but uh, one of the times up there that I was up there, uh, I got uh, paired up with him to do a squash job, and uh, he dropped me right on my neck. But uh, and then he also worked in uh, all Japan for a while, so I got to know him a little better in all Japan. He was a little stiff, a little snug, huh? When he uh, dropped he, you on the head. He, he uh, well, I, he, I think he was just careless on that one. Uh, but yeah, he was a little snug. But uh, Stan Hansen, uh, Steve Williams, we had we had a lot of snug, uh, a lot of snug wrestlers over there in Japan. Oh yeah, definitely want to talk about them uh, just in a few minutes for sure. As far as Dusty though. Any sort of relationship with Dusty after he brought you in? Uh, no, not really. I, I, I definitely could have did a little bit more politic and, uh, and maybe maybe uh, stuck around there a little bit longer. Actually, I was just so damn green when they actually did give me my jungle gym push in uh, WCW. I was just way too green for that push that they wanted to give me. Um, I wish that I hadn't had that push until after I had gone to, uh, to Japan and Puerto Rico, maybe, maybe like two or three, four years into going to, um, into going to Japan and working in Puerto Rico full time. Uh, then maybe I would have been ready for the push that they gave me in WCW. And, uh, 
would have done a lot better here. But I was just, I was just too green, way too green to, uh, and wasn't ready for that push that they gave me. When you were, that would probably, that would probably be a regret. Uh, you know, it's when, when you're given that offer, you take it. You don't uh, just say, "Ah, oh, no thanks." I mean, maybe you do, but uh, I just wish that that offer, that opportunity came a little bit later on when I actually knew a little bit more in the ring. Right, when you were a little more experienced. As far mm-hmm. as ju- Jungle Jim, what is that gimmick? Is that something Dusty just makes up and gives to you? Um, yeah, I think we were just kind of talking about it, and I think that was kind of a, a Dusty uh, uh, thought-out um, gimmick. Did you care for it at all? Did you like it, or you didn't, you didn't even think about it? No, I mean, I liked it enough. It was okay. Um, and I, I liked anything that I was going to be, you know, maybe potentially being successful at and making money at. So, um, and it was, it was definitely a big difference from the 150 people in the sportatorium, um, you know, working for a big company. Even, even USWA Memphis was a big a big step up from little sportatorium and little, you know, that was my first, uh, first glimpse of a bigger arena, bigger area, bigger crowds. So that was kind of cool. And I think that's after a while, it is a little bit addicting. You're just um, addicted to the rush that you get when you're out there, you know, in front of, front of the crowd and. Oh yeah. And I I was watching recently uh, WCW you versus Rick Rude when you were at Jungle Gym, pretty good match, and they gave you a pretty good amount of time. Do you recall that at all? Wrestling Rick Rude? <laughs> I, I do actually. Yeah, I like Rick Rude, man. He was he was a good guy. He was good to me. I mean, you know, he he uh, sat me down and we talked through a match, and I mean, from what I remember, I think he gave me a pretty good pretty good little uh, shine for a while. You know, I think he was, they were pushing him. Uh, did he have the, yep. he might've had the champ championship built. I think he might've been uh, being groomed for, for uh, Vader run, I think. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Now, as far as kind of jungle gym and the look, did they at all mention to you, like, okay, this guy kind of has a big build. He almost looks like Ultimate Warrior a little bit. Did they ever talk to you about, like, kind of what they thought about you or comparisons or, or what they wanted you to be? No, but it was obvious. I mean, it was uh, – you know, like they, they may have mentioned it, but I think it was pretty obvious uh, to anybody that there was a resemblance there, I guess. You know, def, you know. Uh, Ultimate Warrior is definitely bigger and more cut up and shredded, but uh, the whole kind of uh, mannerism and shaking the ropes out is definitely uh, uh, steal from uh, Warrior for sure. Now, later on, WWE would bring in a quote-unquote fake Ultimate Warrior in the Renegade. Oh, yeah. And I that, that. Yeah, and that kind of you know blew up and it wasn't really that good. Did they ever contact you about playing that role? Because if you think about it, you were obviously a 
no offense to Renegade, who is uh, now passed on, but you were a better worker, you were bigger, you had a better look. If they really want to do that gimmick, did you did you ever kind of think, or did they ever ask you, like, hey, you want to play the Renegade? No, you know, I think I, I may have been a better worker later on in my career, like uh, 96, 97, 98. I don't know when uh, – when the renegade had his little push more towards 95 95 okay so i mean they they probably i just left there i think my last year there was 94 and uh 94 was my first year in japan so i had just left there and stunk the joint up just because i was so green so i don't think they were ever i don't think they were ever thinking hey let's bring jungle jim back in to do to do this. I think I, I think I was just so horrible that I, yeah, that guy, you know, and I think once you, once um, they recognize you as being so green, I think it's hard to get that, get rid of that stigma, even though they, they maybe later on they would have seen it, but uh, uh, this never happened. So how do you get to all Japan pro wrestling? Because when you first get there, I guess it's the real world tag league. You came in with the, uh, Dangerous Danny Spivey at first, which is a great partner to have. But how did you get into all Japan? Uh, Johnny Ace called me and uh, asked me if I wanted to go there. And I'm like, uh, yeah, of course. So that's how that's how I started uh, going over there. I think the first time, I think I might have, I can't remember if I went as Jungle Jim or maybe I just went as Jim Steele, I think. I might have gone over one time. Um, wait, was was are you saying the night at '94 the the Real World Tag Team that was my first tour? I believe so. When I was looking it up, I believe that was the first tour I, that I could first spotted you in. I could be wrong, but I believe that was the first one I saw you. Hmm. I, I, I probably I probably did not go over as Jungle Jim. That I probably went over as Jim Steele. Um, yeah, I'm trying to. I probably and I probably didn't wear. Uh, I probably didn't wear my Tarzan getup either. I'm sure I just wore like uh, tights and just went as Jim Steele. I think they had the uh, Kamala Don Warrior over there, so they didn't want another jungle jungle dude over there. They already had one, and uh, I kind of like just going as Jim Steele and not as Jungle Jim. Uh, but yeah, I had a couple a couple different uh, gimmicks over there. Uh, what did I have after after Jim Steele? I think was it Wolf Hawkfield, maybe. I think you were Lacrosse first. Ah, yes, so you remember better than I do. Yes, Lacrosse, absolutely. I hated wearing those masks. Um, what was up and, with that gimmick, though? Like, why why did they want to put you in the mask? I honestly don't know. They for Lacrosse was supposed to be. I don't even know. I would have some kind of satellite, something that was explained to me. I had no idea. But all I knew is that they were going to bring me over more. And, you know, they actually, you know, planned it out where they made different masks for me. And um, and it looked like I was maybe had a foot in the door and I was, I was starting to go over there more frequently. So really, I didn't care if it was a mask or a paper bag they wanted over my head. 
I was like happy just because I was like, all right, I'm coming back for it. Heck yeah, I'll do it. But I was glad when they took the mask off, and then I think we went to Wolf Hawkfield, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, and that's when I got a pretty decent push then with Wolf Hawkfield, uh, me and Johnny Smith. Just interesting, though, like at that point, because you know they had um, Jackie Fulton was going to be the Eagle, obviously Del Wilkes is the Patriot, but, you know, they had a bunch of you guys under mask at that point. I wonder what the um, like the real psychology was kind of behind the, the mask gimmick that they loved. Yeah, I, I don't think it's necessarily an all Japan thing, but I, I think in Mexico too. I think mask. I don't know what the what the allure is, but uh, mask. I don't know if it's maybe just a mystery. I mean, they all knew who was under the mask, but I'm not really sure why there is such uh, interest with mask. But I mean, if you if you notice, like most every most every circuit or group over there has a couple mask people, whether it's all Japan or New Japan or some of the smaller groups that uh, groups they all had at least one or two, maybe a few different uh, mask people. So, but uh, I was I was happy because it it kind of guaranteed me a spot back. So I'm like, heck yeah, I'll wear it, you know. Mm-hmm. Yep, makes sense. How did you think about, like, Japan itself? Culture shock at all? Did you enjoy it over there? I mean, you had eventually so many damn tours over there. It was crazy. But did you like it over there? Um, you know what? I, I, I did and I didn't. Um, I, I, it would be way much easier nowadays in current times to survive over there. Um, I mean, we all survived over there, but uh, it wouldn't have been as much of a culture shock. And I, I did end up liking a lot of the cultures, a lot of the different foods. Uh, but I think that that kind of took a little bit getting used to. Um, I, I remember eating some weird stuff. Or like, to me, tongue is pretty weird or was pretty weird. Um, and when, you know, we would go out to eat, there would be like sponsors that take us out to eat and they just order you food and beer and whatever. And, and I was like, you know, they would just start passing food around. I'm like, Oh, what's this? And they're like, Oh, that's tongue. You just, you know, cook that on the grill and dip it in the lemon juice. And it got to the point where if I went out to eat on my own, I might order that, you know? So I started ordering some things that I probably would never have tried if it wasn't introduced to me. And then I just kept trying it. And I'm like, Hey, you know what? This stuff is actually pretty good. So yeah, I mean, I, I definitely missed and longed for some of the food when I was back home. But when I was over there, uh, we'd be counting the days down before we came back, you know, maybe not right at, at first, but if you're, two or three weeks in on a four-week tour, you're you are counting the days down to come back. But now it's like with the internet and, heck, it just seems so much easier. You can keep in touch. Basically, I don't know how much, uh, you know, internet they would charge you for at the hotels, but, heck, with, with the internet and FaceTime and whatever, you would 
you would definitely be able to deal a lot easier than back in the day when you had to buy, you know, hell, we had to buy calling cards and find a payphone, and no, nobody has to do that shit today. Way different world uh, we live in, that's for sure. Did you mind the long flights over there? Was that kind of a pain for you at all? Uh, you know, I didn't. I didn't mind actually. Uh, we always went through L.A. usually. So we all would meet out in LA, and then we would uh, we would fly from LA over to, as a group usually uh, over to uh, Tokyo. And there's always a couple people that didn't have to fly. And actually, I think Dad always flew with us too. So yeah, I think that was pretty much everybody met out in uh, in LA, and then we'd fly together over there. But I I always like going out to California and. I would always go out a day early uh, just to hang in uh, in L.A. for a day, go to uh, Gold's on Venice Beach and and mark out to all the pros in there. Hmm. Um, and I was always, like, looking for Arnold. I'd go to uh, Gold's or World's. I heard he always hung out at World's, World Gym. So, uh, yeah, I, I liked the boardwalk down there. I liked uh, – I like uh, going to California on the way out. As far as all Japan itself, were you like familiar with the guys you were working with? Like, did you know you were working with some of like the best wrestlers in the world? Like you mentioned. Um. Uh, yeah. You, can you hear me okay? Because you just started really breaking up. I don't know. It was. Can you, yeah. I, oh yeah. Okay. So maybe it was just a, a moment there. Maybe it's not. But it was like very in and out. So. Uh, yeah. You know. By then. Actually, I mean, I, I guess I I tried to absorb all the information that I could, uh, and even though like internet really wasn't internet, I guess just started around then, right? I remember mm-hmm. like having dial-up yep. speed in '95, uh, so uh, I don't think we even had Google back then. It wasn't like I was finding all that information out online. I was just uh, uh, listen to listen to everybody talk and tell stories. I think that's the first thing I noticed, uh, even back at the Sportatory when I first started, uh, is that I could just tell that wrestling was just about people getting together and telling stories of the old days. As you hear, you know, all the old timers in the in the in the locker room telling stories, and I would just listen to the stories anytime anybody was telling a story I'm like oh yeah um or just talking and so yeah no i guess i knew i guess i knew i was wrestling with some of the uh the best wrestlers in the business and you think about which is interesting to me always with japan when they throw like american words together sometimes they don't really make sense like when you were in the triangle of power yeah. Kind of, you know, it kind of makes sense, but it kind of doesn't make sense. Like, you know, like they're like trying to make it sound um, better, but it's kind of weird. And then there's more than three people, so it's not really a triangle. It's like kind of doesn't make sense. But really, you, uh, Gary Albright, another great wrestler, you, um, Gary Albright, and uh, like Dr. Death. I mean, that's a, an unbelievable group of, of talent right there. Yeah, yeah. Um yeah, I think uh, that 
their words or or when you translate a language i don't think it just i don't think it has the true meaning as it probably does in the native language right so yeah triangle of power <laughs> I, I don't know I, don't, I have no idea what uh i don't know a group of power i guess pop i don't know we always made fun of that too I guess it's good. It's just good to be kind of associated with those guys. You get yeah. both strong, like you said, it's a guaranteed spot on the tour, right? Yeah, yeah, right. I, I, I didn't mind it at all, and I think at that time, actually, when I was with them, I think I was lacrosse. Yes. Yep. Right. Okay. Now, as far as the Japanese guys, and some of them are some of the best wrestlers in the world. So, all Japan had one of the best rosters, especially kind of going through the nineties. Do you remember working Kenta Kobashi at all, and and how good he was? Absolutely, yeah. I was he he was awesome to work. Yep, because uh, he was he was just a hard worker, uh, great worker, and uh, matches were always good with him. Um, the other guys. Maybe I just read them wrong, but they seemed like they always had a little bit of an attitude. Or, you know, they were older. Uh, Kobashi was a, was one of the newer guys, so he uh, probably didn't have the attitude that maybe the older, uh, more seasoned wrestlers over there. Like, they, you know, they earned, they earned that, I guess, that little, uh, that sense of, I don't know, power or, or uh, you know, they were they were the top players on in the Japanese side, so you know I didn't really know them that well, and they didn't really talk a lot. But uh, Kobashi just seemed much more approachable, so he was because of that. He was uh, you know we would like him more, I guess, and really didn't talk too much to the other guys. But yeah, I, I love uh, wrestling him. Actually, I really like wrestling all of them, but I just Kobashi was just much more approachable and and uh, talked to him easier, I guess. How about Masawa and Kawada, two other you know huge legends of Japan and two other great workers? Oh, when I think of Masawa, I think of stiff forearm. Oh man, many <laughs> times got got wrung my bill from that. Well, hell, they were all damn stiff. I think. You know, when I came back, because I lived in Puerto Rico, working in Puerto Rico, um, and, and so I would go, when I would leave Puerto Rico, I'd go over to Japan, and, uh, and then back to Puerto Rico. I think when I, whenever I came back, all the guys in Puerto Rico were complaining about me being snug and stiff, because I just came back from there, and, <laughs> and I'm trying to just save my life over there. It was a fight. Yeah, right? The stiff... Snug style. They wanted to look real. They treated it as a real sport. Was that something you liked more so than maybe like the American style? Because they really treated it like it's real. Yeah, I think. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I think they knew. I think. I think they were. The, the, their marks were smart too. They knew that it wasn't real, uh, but I think they just. It looked like such a good. I think they just, they just enjoyed, I believe, like a good, hard-fought match. And they would, they would just show their appreciation different than American fans might, 
watch American wrestling. And I think a lot of American fans would would shit on Japanese wrestling because it wasn't like what they're used to. Uh, maybe, maybe that's maybe that's wrong. But I, I'm thinking that they probably it's it's maybe not as entertaining because it doesn't have as much theatrics in it. Um, but uh, and just you know, Japanese fans when they would see a good move or something they appreciated, they started stopping their feet, and that was a pretty cool. Uh, have you ever been over to Japan at all and saw matches over there? No, never been there live. I own many, many VHS tapes and DVDs, but never been over there live, unfortunately. Okay, but I remember, I, I can imagine that you have seen enough tapes, videos, or whatever matches from Budokan or Karakan Hall, yep. where they just would be like, you know, they do their false finishes at the end, and, and the crowd is popping, and they're just like stomping their feet, like, Sounds like a herd of cattle or something, you know. So it's just they just you get a different uh, a different reaction over there than in the states, but it doesn't mean it's it's better or worse. It's just different, and it's uh, you know when you're used to that. Since I I guess I wrestle, you know, obviously I wrestled over there more um, than here in the states. That was a, a awesome awesome uh, reaction to get from the fans when you know you had them and they're, you know, doing some false finishes, kicking out, and the crowd is just pounding their feet. It's pretty cool. Absolutely. I do miss that, I guess, yep. Yeah, awesome crowds over there for sure. What are your thoughts, or what were your thoughts maybe, of Johnny Ace? Did you like Johnny Ace? Did you get along with him? Yeah, I like Johnny Ace. I, I got along with him. Um, I think uh, – he might have got some heat from the boys just because he was in a position of power over there. Um, you know, he was he was in tight with Mr. and Mrs. Baba, and um, well, hey, look where is he, is he still? Is he still over in uh, WWE still as a agent, or I don't even yep. know what his title is. He is the head producer, head agent. Oh, he's the head producer. Okay, all right. Well, good. I mean, he always. See, he did that politic that I never did. Um, so you know, it's it's not always how great how how great of a wrestler performer you are. Sometimes it's just uh, how great of a performer in the office you are. Right. So, yep. Uh, I have nothing bad to say about Johnny. I liked him. I mean, he brought me over. I, you know, uh, I can't uh, can't. Not like that. He brought me over, and uh, you know, I worked over there for eleven years, so that's pretty cool. Yeah, good point. As far as the you mentioned before, the Wolf Hawkfield character, where did that come from? Did they just randomly like, okay, now we want you to be Wolf, <laughs> Wolf Hawkfield and your team with Johnny Smith? All right, well, I have a little better answer to that one. Uh, so Wolf Hawkfield, um, that was a uh, Sega character um and i i I'm, I'm assuming that it was just excuse me uh this wolf hawkfield character was a game character like you know uh, a arcade game um mm-hmm. and so i believe all japan had signed some kind of deal with 
uh, with Sega as far as creating uh, a wrestling electronic, you know, a wrestling game that you can hook up console to your television, like Atari or Xbox or whatever. Um, and so uh, I guess it was an easy transition because you got Sega and uh, they're creating this game and Wolf Hawkfield is a character. And so I guess it was easy for them to just kind of transition and roll me in to um, Wolf Hawkfield, which is a character they already had. Uh, and that's how I went from, I guess, Jim uh, Lacrosse to Wolf Hawkfield. And I was glad to get rid of my mask, <laughs> for sure. And you and uh, Jim, uh, excuse me, Johnny Smith win the uh, Tag Team Championship, the All Japan Tag Team Championship. Were you kind of surprised? Because that's like a kind of a big thing, winning, winning a title over there. Um, I don't know if I was surprised. I think I, I heard about it, you know, coming down that they were going to give us the belts for a while. Uh, I think maybe I was surprised for how long we kept them for, maybe. I don't remember how long, if it was a year straight, almost a year, a little more than a year. I can't remember. But I know we had them for a pretty long time. So that that part of it was probably a little bit of a surprise. And Junakiyama and Amori, obviously Junakiyama, legend as well. So very, uh, very good guys. You're, you know, you're beaten to hold on to the titles, and I believe you held on for I think it was ten months or something like that. But yeah, it was, it was a, okay. Yeah, it was a, it was a nice long good run for sure. Yeah, absolutely. When you're kind of going along and you're wrestling the Japanese guys, I'm always very curious about this. Is it easy to communicate in the ring with them? Do they know a little bit of English? Do you know a little bit of oh, Japanese? Yeah. Like, how well. Well, I know very little Japanese, Goshi, um, but I mean, all of them spoke good English, really good English, um, even the ones that maybe acted like they didn't. So uh, we would communicate in English in the ring, and you didn't really need to say, you didn't really need to say a lot. Um, uh, hell, a lot of the matches are are. Well, we got, you know, a couple spots at least to transition heat and go home. So, and and the, the stuff in between, that was just all ad lib. But at least we knew that, okay, this particular spot, we're going home. This particular spot, we're getting the heat. All the rest of it was ad lib. It's just like a dance. If you, you know, if you dance with them before, you kind of know uh, know their moves. Heck, even if you haven't, you know their moves because you see them work every night, and uh, and you know you just you kind of just go with whatever the other person is uh, doing, and you feed off of that and back and forth, and then you have a couple uh, a couple spots for transition called out ahead of time, and uh, really didn't even have to talk too much in there. When you're becoming kind of a big star in Japan, obviously all Japan tag team champion, you're you're wrestling all these great guys, 
obviously you're winning. You were a champion for basically 10 months there. Is there a lot of interest back from the States? Are they kind of finding out and kind of seeing more in you, seeing how good you've gotten? Are they wanting you to come back and wrestle for them in the States? You know what? I don't, I don't know if, I mean, I'm sure they had access to, uh, to tapes or videos or whatever. Um, it, you know, it wasn't like now where heck all the matches you I, you can go out and find matches back in my time on YouTube or something. Uh, it wasn't that prevalent. You didn't have all the matches um, readily available, or anybody could just pull it up on a phone. Heck, I don't think we even had smartphones yet back then. But uh, yeah, I guess they they could have known maybe from watching it would have been a little bit harder um to to find out information but i guess if you know they're the heads of different offices they could find that stuff out easy but uh yeah i don't i don't know i don't think there was uh any interest maybe maybe i just uh stunk the joint up so bad in wcw that they didn't <laughs> uh they didn't want to give me another chance i don't know didn't you have a few kind of little spots in ECW for, uh, for uh, Paul Heyman? Yeah, I, I, where nine one one slammed the hell out of me about thirty eight thousand times. I don't know. Yes. I guess I, I guess I should probably. Well, I don't know if that even hurt me over in Japan or not. Uh, some people said it may have, but I don't know. Um, yeah, but, I'm not sure, but that. Definitely wasn't planning on getting slammed that many times. And uh, so, hey, I was green at the time, though. So I, I live and learn. Didn't you go back again, too, a few years later to ECW when you were Wolf? I, You know what? I think I may have maybe when they came to Florida. Um, yeah, about 98. They had a, a tour of... Uh... Of basically Tampa, Kissimmee, Florida, yeah, and Walt, okay. you were there as well. I probably, I probably did in, in Tampa then. Yeah, um, I don't even remember what the, I can't remember if I went over or not. Um, yes, they just, I did. They just probably put me over. Just I was, you know, in Tampa, my home. I don't know. I don't even really remember that well, but I know I did. Yeah, I didn't really do too much with them. Did you um, like that style? Obviously, it's a different style than WWE or WWF at the time. You know what? I don't know if I did like that style, really. Um, uh, yeah, I think it was just a little bit uh, uh, rough around the edges for me. Um, I wasn't into getting juice, and it seemed like that was a big deal there at ECW. Um, so, I mean, that's one thing I never did. I mean, maybe I would have for certain situations, but like, uh, you know, Puerto Rico, that, that was like a nightly thing for them down there. Yeah. They love uh, blood down there, huh? I mean, yeah, that was just like, his, if you're going to lock up, you're going to get juice. I mean, it's just, so I don't know. It's just not, uh, you know, nowadays or even then, right? You maybe didn't know that much, but that just didn't seem like a very safe thing. And I just wasn't, you know, I guess 
the different leagues would would change WC or WWE as I don't think they they did for a little while. Then I think they you know cut all that out. And anyway, it just wasn't wasn't uh, my thing. I wasn't big on that. So any interest from WWE or WWF at that point? Because you did have I guess a couple dark matches. Yeah, I don't I don't think uh, nothing obviously ever ever came of it. Um, so yeah, I don't know what ever happened with that. Yeah, I mean, it's all history now, you know. But you know, maybe things would have turned out different. I I still think that had I gotten you know the push that I did in WCW, if I actually knew what I was doing at that point, I, maybe it, things would have been a lot different. But uh, I was just so green and horrible. And, uh, you know, when I see some of those old matches, I think I even, when I had a match at pay-per-view, my one and only pay-per-view with them was, um, uh, what the hell was his name? I'm trying to think. Blah, dude. Uh, Equalizer. And, uh, David Sullivan, yes. Yes. And uh, I just watching that. I mean, watching that match, I just like, you know, now watching it, I'm like, oh, my God, that is so horrible. Uh, it just it probably just did me in. For, you know, I don't know. I'm sure they, they could see improvement, but uh, whatever interest was gone, I guess. Or You do get the win, though. That is, that, that is key. You do get the win on pay-per-view, which is kind of looks good yeah. in the fans' eyes, at least. Yeah, in the fans' eyes. It doesn't really matter, right? Right. As long as they're paying you. <laughs> you actually, if you really look at the kind of your career, you mentioned 11-year run, in, you know, really in Japan. But that's kind of great for you probably financially. Puerto Rico, Pan, you're going back and forth. I mean, you're probably doing really good for yourself at that point. A lot of traveling, but you're doing probably really good. Hey, a lot of traveling. I was doing okay. I wasn't making, like, superstar money or anything. But I was living a decent life. Um and you know, working full time over in Japan was about what twenty, twenty two, twenty three uh, weeks a year, so almost half the year. Um, yeah, I wasn't getting wealthy, but I, I made an okay living for that time. But nothing, not, nothing I could retire on or anything for sure. <laughs> Which is why I went back to school and why I'm still working now. Yes, exactly. When you Go back to Japan. I mean, not really go back, but when they kind of put you as Jim Steele again in all Japan, is there something where they're like, all right, the wolf character is done. There's maybe they're not promoting Sega anymore or whatever, and they bring you back to being Jim Steele. Uh, so this is what after I after and, I was in New Japan and now I'm back in all Japan. Ba- well, basically, you are. Um, you're, I think basically no, no. You're still you're still in all Japan. So you're in okay. all Japan. You're Wolf, but then they bring you and they make you Jim Steele again while still in all Japan. Right before okay, okay. you jump to New Japan. Okay, so yeah, I think maybe their Sega contract, your Sega deal was done, perhaps. And so I was actually glad just to go back to Jim Steele. No face paint, no mask. Um, and then we're actually getting a pretty decent little push there and and uh, went to New Japan. And then we're in the tag tournament over there. 
and then I blew my knee out. <laughs> That's how luck goes. Damn, and you had uh, Mike Barton, Bart Gunn, as your uh, yes. your tag partner. Yep, yep. How'd you injure the knee? Oh, uh, in the ring, I uh, doing my finish that I have done on hundreds of people. It's just uh, the way the doctor explained it to me. It's he said it's like I don't know. He said it was like just physics. I don't understand it, but like he said, kind of like a piece of paper. How come a how can a piece of paper just cut your finger, right? Well, it usually can't. You just you can try to take that piece of paper and try to cut yourself with it over and over and over, and you're not going to do anything. And then then one time you're going to just go to pick up a piece of paper and it's going to just hit you just in the right way and it's going to cut your finger off a piece of paper. So. He said that you were just in the right position at the right time and just tore that shit right off. Came right off my knee and boom, I was down. Down and out. They had to carry me out. And I went home like a couple of days later. Damn. And I guess that was kind of a brief end to you and uh, Mike Barton. That's a team that so many people remember as a, such a great team. Kind of an underrated team a little bit. Uh, maybe. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, we also went over and did a, uh, me and uh, Bart, we did a uh, movie over in uh, South Korea um, through through uh, being over in New Japan, um, trying to remember who we played. Um, are you familiar with that movie? No, I'm trying to think of it. Okay. I, I, lo- I, I loved it because I can picture you and him being like two badasses. It, it, it was um, it was a, a movie about Ricky Dozon. Oh, and, and okay. he was. Okay. I don't know the name of it. Somebody had sent me a link to it, so and I, right now the name escapes me. But if you you can Google like uh, uh, Mike Barton, Jim Steele, and Ricky Dozon movie. Or, Ricky, uh, Ricky Dozon, a hero extraordinary. Is that the name of it? That's what it looks like. It, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so we we were over in uh, South Korea. Excuse me, South Korea, uh, shooting that one, and that was that was a cool experience. What was it like, kind of doing movies and stuff? Do you feel like you know you're a huge star? Like, okay, I'm making movies. Is that <laughs> no, like that cross your line? Definitely don't feel like a huge star at all. But it was fun. Uh, and I did a couple other like just small, small movies. They uh went directly to uh VHS, um uh what was it, Super Fighters. I don't know if you know that one or not. Um uh, Rob Van Dam turned me on to that one. That was filmed up in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And uh I think there was one when I was in Puerto Rico, they were they were filming a movie down there. I think I was like I was like I didn't even have a starring role or anything. I was just like an extra, I think, or some some uh, fight scene or something. But, very cool, uh, though. A very cool one, experience for sure. Yeah, yeah. With New Japan and All Japan, did you like working for one better than the other? Uh. All Japan felt like 
family, I guess, because, uh, I don't know, I've been there the longest. And I think also that, from what I started anyway, they had more gaijins. Like, we had our own gaijin bus uh, with our, you know, bus driver and one of the referees, Joe. Um, And so it was kind of like a close-knit family group there. Uh, In New Japan, I believe they didn't bring as many gaijins over. Um, They didn't bring as many gaijins. And the bus had Japanese and gaijins on the bus, which is, you know, not a big deal. I'm just showing you the difference. Uh, But New Japan... Um, they seemed like it was a bigger company and bigger production deal. So if you could, if you uh, maybe think of uh, as New Japan, like WWE, and All Japan, WCW, not that not that because uh, everybody knows that you know Vince and WWE is the, is the the big the big uh, group to be with. Is, well, now it's the only group, or not really the only group. I guess they got what? What's the other group? Uh, AEW. AEW. Yep. But uh, you know, back in the day, uh, WCW. Even though you know the the, the people there, the, the wrestlers there had big, huge contracts, bigger than. Uh, Vince was given out, but it seemed like Vince was making stars. WCW was just using the stars that Vince had made. Um, and I'm sure, you know, WCW made some stars too. But uh, so if you think of it kind of like that, uh, New Japan was kind of more WWE. It seemed like it was a bigger production. Um big screens, they, they cater to you more. Paint uh, drinks in the in, in the locker rooms. I know all Japan always had beer in the bus for us after the match, which was kind of nice. So you drive to the next town, we're all drinking, uh, you know, to the next town. But the, the bus was always stocked with beer, but so was New Japan. Um, yeah, I guess it just seemed like more of a family, just because I knew them more in all Japan. And New Japan just seemed like a bigger production. Now, as far as kind of going along in your career, what was your favorite place to work, though? Was it Japan, Puerto Rico? Did you prefer working in the States? Like, what, what, what was your favorite kind of place? Would it be all Japan? Uh, I would probably say Japan. Uh, and, uh, you know, well, Maybe all Japan, just because I'm going to have to probably say all Japan, just because, you know, I was with them the longest. Um, And, uh, well, in New Japan, I guess, wrestled in Karakin Hall as well. But uh, two of my favorite places to wrestle was Karakin Hall and Budokan. Like those, those, Karakin Hall was so small, I think maybe it held, I don't know, it holds maybe two thousand people, maybe fifteen hundred. I don't even know what the how how many people they hold, but I, I know that they were always packed, and 
it just felt like they were right on top of you. Like you could feel them breathing on you. They were so close to you. And that was cool. And then, of course, the Budokan is just awesome. I mean, I've wrestled in the Tokyo Dome, too. It had a lot more people in that. I don't know what the Tokyo Dome holds. I think maybe, I want to say 55, maybe 1,000. Mm-hmm. But 65, the, somewhere around there. Oh, yep. 65, okay, 65,000. Uh, but the way they had it set up, um, it wouldn't have had it wouldn't have held 55 because they had the big Titan Tron or yeah, the big, you know Tron. So uh, I think I think maybe it had maybe like 30,000 or something when we wrestled there. Um, so by the venue size, it's much larger. But the Budokan, just the way the way it is set up and the way the seat kind of just go up in a, I don't know, old Coliseum type type uh, setting. It just it seemed like they were, you know, they were, it was a bigger arena further away, but just the way they kind of went up and the way the noise carried in there, when you got them stomping their feet and popping in there, it was, that was, uh, that was always the last match of the tour, but that, Man, the adrenaline that you would get being in the ring in that uh, in the Budokai was freaking awesome. Absolutely. Now, I didn't mention this, and, and I didn't want to kind of overlook it. I, I mentioned it kind of when we started. What was the whole love machine gimmick? When you go back to old Japan in basically <laughs> 2004, what was that gimmick all about? Dude, I have no idea. Like, like, uh, I don't know how their minds work. They love machine steel. <laughs> that was freaking hilarious. I, I I don't know if that was just a rib on me or what, um, or who who they gave creative creative uh, range on that. But I, I just must have been a must have been a rib on me or something. But and that didn't last very long. Love machine steel. That was ridiculous. <laughs> but funny. <laughs> Now, as we head for the wind down, we head for the finish. What are some of your kind of just favorite matches? Because I mean, we mentioned, I mean, you've got you've been in the ring with some of the greatest wrestlers, uh, especially the Japanese. You got Kobashi, Misawa, Kawada, uh, Tao. You were in the ring with. I mean, my God, there's so many great wrestlers that you've been able to wrestle. Do you have favorite matches? Ah, uh, let me see. Um. You know, I, I don't know, you know, if I said, oh, the time that I won the tag team championship or whatever, I don't know. That's, um, I don't know if I can pinpoint it to a, a particular match, but I, like I said, I, I, the Budokan and Karakin Hall were by far the best places I enjoyed wrestling. So any match I had there was an awesome match. Um one little funny story is I tell you a, a match that stood out is kind of funny is I got totally knocked out in the ring and shit my pants in uh, Crockett Hall. Like I, <laughs> like I was literally, I was literally snoring in the ring because I was knocked out. And uh, this was a double kick. Uh, Rob Van Dan and Sabu, uh, Sabu did 
tossed me in the corner, bounced in the turnbuckle, staggered back, and they did this double double kick. So I don't know which one it, which one it was that knocked me out. But so I just knocked right back, boom, and Rob went up for a splash. You know, of course, everything is told to me now because I was out, but. So, so Rob, Rob goes up for a splash, splashes me. Of course, I'm not moving. So, you know, normally you're going to protect yourself a little bit, and at the very last moment you're going to tense up. Well, I didn't tense up at all because I'm totally knocked out. And uh, But it was me and Eagle against uh, Sabu and, and Rob. And uh, so here I am, one, two, and Rob just, like, kicks himself off, right? Makes it look like I kicked himself off, but he kicked himself off. So I think uh, the crowd kind of laughs at that. Um, and then they had to figure out a way to get me get me out of there because Eagle needed to come back in. I needed to make the tag to have Eagle come in and go. And so I'm freaking knocked out snoring in the middle of the ring and I think uh, so to make it look like I don't know like to get me over the quarter Eagle comes in the ring grabs me and, and like tries to pull me over to the corner and then Robin Sabu come in to prevent him from getting me to the ring finally finally uh, goes back out of the ring and does a dead tag on me because I'm not lifting my hand up the tag. Uh, comes in, does the finish, goes home. And meanwhile, I'm on the outside of the the ring. Still have no idea where I'm at. I think I'm starting to come around a little bit. But if you've ever been knocked out, you know that that you're just dazed and confused and you're just not even sure where you're at right now. And so I'm trying to get this freaking mask off me, and I have, like, the mask probably halfway off, but I tie it on tight so I couldn't – what is it coming off easy? Uh, young boys at the side of the, on the side of the ring are throwing towels over my head because, you know, even though everybody knows who's under the mask, um, you know, you're not supposed to give away the secret. Right. Yep. Um, and uh, so – Finally, the match is over. They're kind of helping me walk back. I almost run into and knock Mr. Baba over in the back because I was just so out of it. Um, get to the get to the back and start asking everybody questions um, repeatedly because I didn't, you know, I'd ask one person, "What hey, what happened? Did you see you out there?" I'd ask the next person. I'd go ask the next person, and then I would eventually come back and ask the first person I asked. And they're like, dude, you just asked me. Well, I, obviously I don't remember because I'm knocked out. Um, but I've gone through the whole, you know, two, three times around in circles asking if they saw what happened. And I'm like, all right, well, I guess I'll, guess, guess I'll uh, go take a shower and get ready. And so I – start taking my tights off and I got a load of shit in my pants. I'm like, what the? And, and of course, now they're all laughing at me going, oh, dude, it was you. That's what smelled out there. 
Well, you know, I wasn't protecting myself. And here Rob <laughs> comes down and, and basically knocks the shit out of me, uh, like legit. And uh, so here I got a pile of shit in my trunk. <laughs> Until I get back, I had no idea. Taking them off, I'm like, what the hell? So that's a, you know, as far as a a, a match that stands out, that's one of them. And I've been knocked out in, in other matches, but none that I've actually like lost consciousness. I just continued through the entire match, uh, didn't miss a beat, but totally don't remember much of it. But that one. I was uh, definitely knocked out and and on the mat snoring when I got the shit knocked out of me, literally. <laughs> <laughs> that is crazy. As far as some of the gimmicks you did, Jungle, Jim Steele, I mean, we just said the Love Machine, Wolf, the Lacrosse. Do you have a favorite gimmick, or did you? is there any of the ones that you enjoyed more than the others, maybe just playing Jim Steele? Uh, yeah, I think eventually... Uh, like just playing Jim Steele, being more of a heel. Like in Puerto Rico, that was probably uh, the funnest as far as because, you know, Puerto Rico was more American style with, uh, you know, theatrics. Um, and you could kind of work that angle and uh, and have a little freedom with uh, how you wanted to do your character there. Plus I had... You know, by, in Puerto Rico, I had, at this time, um, you know, I'd become an okay worker, and it was fun to have a match, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. What would you say if, you know, the, the career is over, people are looking back on you, what's kind of the stamp you left on wrestling, or what's the legacy you left on wrestling? What do you think when people think of Jim Steele? Oh, man, I made it out alive. I don't know. <laughs> Honestly, I don't know. Yeah, let's wrap it up. Just uh, give us some of your plugs, and uh, we can wrap this thing up. Oh, uh, plugs? I don't have any plugs, man. I don't, I'm not uh, wrestling or doing anything creative right now. Uh, but, uh, you know, hey, if anybody needs a nurse for uh, ICU and hiring good uh, good wages, let me know. <laughs> All right. Good stuff there. Thank you uh, for everything. Appreciate the time tonight. And, uh Thank you, Jungle Jim, Lacrosse, uh, Wolf, Love Machine, and uh, everybody in between. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you, John. Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling, What the World is Downloading.